Good afternoon and welcome to this afternoon, this week's episode of Long Story Short. I'm Kate Midden here with Associate Editor Idva Saldinger to talk about the 15-year anniversary of the President's Emergency Plan for AIDS Relief. Happy birthday, Pepfar. You turned 15 on Sunday. Um, Idva, you published a big piece on Friday really looking at the, the history of PEPFAR, you know, the political will that brought it into being, the challenges that it faces now, and kind of how this program has transformed over the f past 15 years of its existence. Thank you so much for joining us to talk about it. Yeah, thanks so much for, for having me this week. And, um, you know, this, this particular um, project is a collaboration with Michael Igo, who's one of our senior reporters here, and we spent a lot of time both trying to um, bridge the gap of giving people a glimpse of where things were 15 years ago and where things are today, and really how PEPFAR had not only just transformed um, the global response to HIV-AIDS, but also how it's really transformed global health more broadly. There's so much to get into here, but for viewers who might not be as familiar with PEPFAR as you know, an, an, your average global health DevEx consumer, I do want to give a couple numbers just to illustrate the breadth of the transformational change that, prep, that PEPFAR has brought about. Uh, PEPFAR, in the past 15 years, it has now reached 50 countries. It has saved millions of lives. More than 14 million people are now receiving antiretroviral treatment that weren't before. 85.5 um, million people have been able to get tested to see if they are HIV or AIDS positive. Um, and more than $70 billion has been funneled to AIDS relief since 2003. So against that backdrop, I want to take us back to kind of the founding of PEPFAR. Um, because to really understand the nature of it and the depth of the transformation, and we really need to understand what what the world looked like then. So can you take us through what that looked like? Absolutely. You know, I think one of the really moving parts in doing this reporting was talking to people who were in sub-Saharan Africa in the late 90s and early 2000s, sort of just predating um, PEPFAR. And one of the, you know, really sort of profound things that you heard from them is that death and dying were normal. It was, you know, dark days. It was a really... Um, bleak time. There weren't options. If you were diagnosed with HIV, um, that was essentially a death sentence. And there was little that medical professionals could do. It was sort of similar, actually, to the situation in the, in the 1980s in, in the U.S. And that's something that um, Dr. Anthony Fauci at NIH um, told us in an interview was that, you know, when he went to Africa in the early 2000s, it was a really sick kind of deja vu for him. Um, and brought him back to those days in the 80s when as a, you know, as a doctor trying to treat HIV patients, it was really hopeless. There was a haunting illustration in the piece that came out on Friday where I don't believe it was Dr. Fauci, but another global health professional was saying, you know, we got there and people were being buried six deep to a grave and we just didn't know why. And I mean, that harkened back a lot to when you talk to doctors who were around during the AIDS epidemic, kind of the rush to try to figure out what's killing people and yeah. what to do about it. That was Melinda Wilson from USAID who went to South Africa in, uh, in 2000. Um, and at that point, people did know um, what the cause was, but there really were no treatment options. And so essentially, um, 
you know, they were basically helpless. And, and, that, and those were the words she used, that, that there was really very little they could do. They could help people who were HIV positive create memory boxes from their children. They could try to find ways to support those children as they became AIDS orphans, but there was very little that could be done. And I think, you know, to see the magnitude of that problem in, in the 1990s, the number of people with HIV AIDS in Sub-Saharan Africa doubled. And so suddenly, you know, around the early 2000s, people were saying, this is the new epicenter of the epidemic and something has to be done. There was really this um, rising sense that, you know, there had to be something done. So I think in recent years, particularly in the development industry, we're used to, in the U.S., Republican administrations coming in and maybe cutting global health funding, moving to cut global health funding. But the biggest champion of PEPFAR was George W. Bush. Yeah, and you know, I think this is one of the really key legacies of his presidency. Um, he is beloved in Africa largely for creating PEPFAR, and, um, and his vision and his leadership was really what made it happen. Um, I think he recognized that this was a place where the U.S. needed to exert moral leadership and it needed to put um, both and he and he really put his presidency behind it and he said we have to spend the money um, he sent a team that included um, Dr. Fauci um, and several other global health leaders including Mark, Mark Dibel who, who later became the head of PEPFAR and the head of the global fund to fight AIDS tuberculosis and malaria um, on a mission and at the time basically what they came back with was a 500 million dollar plan to address mother to child transmission of HIV which there was a fairly simple medication that you could use to prevent transmission um, and so that program came into place but President Bush went to them and he said um, go bigger we need to do more and, and Fauci at the time said to him this would cost so much money we'll, we'll never be able to do it and, and Bush said let me worry about the money. It's amazing, you know, to think about that in today's context, that just funneling that many billions of dollars into AIDS programming. And, you know, as we talked about at the top of the show, I mean, the, the, the outcome of that has been really dramatic. I mean, more than 14 million people who are getting treatment that weren't before. Um, I do want to delve into the model of PEPFAR because the funding, you know, nothing can happen without the funding. But something that was that really stuck out to me in your story was this idea that the money came through, but there wasn't an aid system that was ready to deliver this kind of endeavor. And it seemed like there was sort of consensus that the system was broken, so we needed to make another system. Yeah, you know, I, I think that um, what was unique at the time was that PEPFAR was housed at the State Department. Um, and <clears throat> there was definitely some hand-wringing at USAID at the time why it wasn't housed there, but I think for some strategic reasons it was placed at the State Department. And in talking to um, Ambassador Jimmy Kolker, who at the time was U.S. Ambassador in Uganda, um, he said that, you know, having these funds housed at the State Department essentially allowed them to be allocated to ambassadors and deployed very quickly. Um, you know, local implementers didn't have to apply and go through traditional procurement processes, and he said that it literally saved years in helping to get the implementation up and running. Now, you know, 
it was a pretty complex endeavor. Places like Uganda actually already had organizations who were working on this and could implement more quickly. In other countries, the implementation still did take some time because you didn't have the partners that you needed to be able to rapidly scale up treatment. I guess something that is also really important to talk about, there's the oper operationalization of this. But when we talk about the political leadership, about George W. Bush saying we're going to go big, you know, it's, it's not just one person that has to say that we're going to do this. And another big theme that stuck out in your story was that a lot of the opposition to, the, to making PEPFAR come into being was racism. Yeah, you know, I think uh, I think some of it was rooted in racism. I think um, largely people just did not think that a treatment program at this scale was possible in sub-Saharan Africa. Now, part of that, I mean, famously, um, Andrew Natsios, who was then USAID administrator, testified in Congress and um, gave an interview in the press in which he said that, you know, Africans don't understand Western time. They don't have clocks. They wouldn't be able to follow treatment regimens as a result. Um, and so we shouldn't invest in treatment programs because they just wouldn't work. Amazing that that would come from the from administrator, administrator of right? USAID. And, but I think that gives you a sense of just how revolutionary PEPFAR was. I mean, it was not a foregone conclusion. Uh, it, it, it could have very well not succeeded. And I think people at the time really didn't know if it would, but they said we need to make a big bet. And I think that um, another thing that was really remarkable is that it was really a bipartisan effort in Congress. Um, it was, you know, there was a big push from the Congressional Black Caucus to do something around these issues. Um, and they came together and they worked with, you know, um, you know, Democrats worked with Republicans, even under some really complicated discussions and um, sort of diff difficult political debates around, you know, whether certain amounts of funding would have to be earmarked, for example, for certain types of um, family planning education. For example, if, you know, you could, you know, you would have to spend, let's say, 25% of the prevention funds talking about abstinence. Um, Amazing that given the number of kind of political influences to make something come into being that it was as successful as it was. I think there was one clause that you wrote about where was it Representative Chris Smith, you know, enacted a, was it a clause of conscience? Yeah. And I mean, yeah, yeah. How and do I you think, reconcile? I, I think that, um, you know, I talked to Barbara Lee, who helped lead the efforts at the time and is still a very strong PEPFAR supporter. And she was saying that Democrats turned to her and said, should we not vote for this? And she said, it's too important. Um, we'll figure it out. We'll figure out how to deal with some of these um, amendments. Um, but it's too important for us to vote now. Yeah. So they pa they authorized the bill yeah and it, and it really passed you know um, president bush made the announcement about pepfar in his state of the union um, and just a few months later in may um, the legislation was passed and so that's really the sort of anniversary that that we celebrate now is the date that that um, that that legislation passed and really launched um, launched pepfar so as we were talking about earlier, you know, they, they rolled out this plan, 
giving money directly to ambassadors, not having to wait on a lengthy procurement process. Were there major challenges that you've heard people talk about? I mean, in, in building this, this extra, extra aid system outside of the aid system? You know, absolutely. I mean, I think, I think there were lots of challenges with delivery. Um, and PEPFAR was a very different program in a lot of ways. I mean, people talk about its success factors, and, and, and for one, it had that strong political leadership. That was key. Um, it also came with a lot of money. Um, the initial bill authorized $15 billion over five years, um, and to date it's sort of the largest single disease public health, global health program any country has embarked on. Um, and, and, you know, it, it also had, it came with, it this, with a focus on results and accountability. So one of the things that we talk about in the article is that um, I think it was Fauci who recalled something that um, Rwandan President Paul Kagame told him, which was that you know PEPFAR was the first program to respect them enough to hold them accountable. Um, and I think that one of the things PEPFAR has done is it looked um, to break down silos, both in sort of the way it delivered um, PEPFAR treatment in global health, but it also really was an early example of this intra-agency, all-of-government approach so it wasn't just the State Department. It was USAID, it was the CDC, it was HHS. So you really had multiple different parts of the U.S. government coming together to you know, figure out the best ways to tackle this challenge. I have a lot of questions going off of that very point, but I do want to take a quick second just to say, for those just tuning in, I'm Kate Midden here with DevX Associate Editor Edva Saldinger. If you have any questions about PEPFAR or things that you would like covered, please feel free to tweet them at us using hashtag DevXInsider or leave them in the comments. Uh, we will be reserving room for questions at the end. So this transformative approach, this whole of government approach, why aren't we, actually I should ask, are we using that for other global health endeavors if yes, what? If no, why? It yeah. sounds too effective you know, not to. PEPFAR has in many ways been incredibly unique. And I think it's somewhat unlikely that we see another sort of single issue initiative to this scale. Um, certainly right now in this sort of um, political and, and budget climate. But um, there have been other examples since then of um, development programs that have looked to really leverage the abilities of different agencies. We've seen it to some extent with the President's Malaria Initiative, which was also an initiative launched by Bush. We've seen it in other programs uh, launched in the Obama administration, like Feed the Future um, and uh, Power Africa, which bring together uh, different agencies in the U.S. government to tackle specific issues. But even those don't feel like the level of they're, investment. They are, they're not at the same scale. Um, I, they haven't been signature initiatives with the same sort of leadership um, and funding that, that PEPFAR has been. So now, 15 years after PEPFAR has come into being, we're looking at a different world in many ways. What are some of the challenges that we're looking at you know, right now that global health professionals would have to work towards enable to, or in order to have PEPFAR continue this success? Yeah, you know, I mean, I think everyone we spoke to said, look, it's incredibly important to note everything that PEPFAR has achieved. Um, it really has been transformative over the last 15 years. Um, some people would say miraculous. 
um, in terms of what it's been able to accomplish. And I think where we stand today is that the program has really focused on data, on results, on maximizing its efficiency, on using the funds it has to the best of its ability, um, and really pushing implementers to, to do that. Um, I think where we stand today is at what a lot of people call a really critical juncture in the epidemic. Um, and that's in part because uh, in Sub-Saharan Africa, the population is supposed to double by 2050. And young people who make up the majority of that population um, are the fastest growing group of new HIV infections. Well, particularly teenage girls. Absolutely. And so I think that um, you know, one of the key challenges now is how do you educate um, this group of young people who are coming up? How do you find effective programs that will target them? And, and you know, I had a conversation um, with Babalwa Mbono, who works for Mothers to Mothers in South Africa, and she herself is HIV positive and found out when she was pregnant with her now 15-year-old daughter. Um, she was an early recipient of um, PEPFAR support through the Mother to Child Transmission Program, and her daughter was born HIV free. And she was saying how she looks at her daughter and children like her, um, and at the investment that the U.S has made in keeping them and you know helping them you know be born and grow up HIV free and that what's really critical now is that there's a continued investment to ensure that as they enter their teens they remain HIV free and you know a lot of it is you know certain cultural pressures in South Africa for example um, a lot of teenage girls are pressured you know largely due to issues of poverty into sleeping with older men uh, and there's a real sort of culture around that, and that obviously spreads the disease um, in, um, in ways that have to be addressed and, and tackled. And, and PEPFAR has certainly recognized that this is a key demographic. Um, as I mentioned, they really try to be very data-driven. About three years ago, they launched um, a program called DREAMS, which really is targeting adolescent girls and trying to find ways to reduce um, infection rates among that population. And the early results from that program are, um, are pretty impressive, somewhere between 20 and 40% reduction in infection rates. Um, and so it seems to be succeeding. So it just sounds like with a lack of funding, so much of this progress could just... Yeah, you know, and I think that's another fundamental challenge today. It's maintaining that sort of momentum and support um, both in the administration and in Congress um, for PEPFAR. So there are actually two sides of the funding question that I would like to get into. One, is it something that PEPFAR did that was very revolutionary for its time that now seems like a commonplace conversation is private sector engagement. What did that look like then? And do you have thoughts about how that model could be transformed or if it's just still relevant today to leverage the kind of money that we need? Yeah, you know, it, it certainly is something that um, PEPFAR has done, I think that there are questions, you know, I mean, I think one of the, you know, real big impacts of PEPFAR was helping to bring down, um, and, and the Global Fund had a big role in this as well, was helping to bring down drug prices. Um, and that's where the private sector has been a really critical partner um, in addressing uh, the HIV epidemic. And that will continue to be an important issue, especially as new drug treatments come online. Um, and helping to roll those uh, those drugs out in sub-Saharan Africa. Uh, you know, whether private sector funding could really fill some of the gaps if PEPFAR funding declines, I think that's an open question. I, I don't know um, if, if that will happen or, or what the incentives around that would be. Sure. The other side of my question is the Trump administration has moved to cut 
PEPFAR funding by $800 million. Yeah. What would that do? Um, you know, we don't have a very, you know, an exact sense of what would happen, but obviously $800 million is a pretty significant chunk of the PEPFAR budget. Um, it would limit what PEPFAR could do. Uh, we don't know exactly how um, at this point, and that's in large part um, due to Congress pushing back pretty um, regularly on, on that request. It's a request that happened in the last fiscal year as well, and Congress said, no, we're going to maintain um, PEPFAR funding. And I think most people expect that to happen in, in this funding cycle as well, that PEPFAR will be able to maintain its levels of funding. I think one important thing to note is that PEPFAR funding has been flat for quite a number of years. And one of the things that we've heard from implementers is that there's a growing concern um, about the ability of PEPFAR to adapt, that basically over the past few years, it's been able to, you know, improve what it does and grow on what it does by finding efficiencies, but that there are no more efficiencies to be had. So in order to grow the problem, to you know, in, in you know, in the countries that are close to epidemic control, to get to those last people who may be harder to reach, they're going to have to do it with the same funds they have today. That that will be really difficult. And you know, we're hearing real challenges in, for example, scaling up the Dreams program, um, which has proven to be successful. But from what I heard in the latest um, country planning process that completed a, a couple of months ago. Countries were really struggling to find the funds to even expand to one or two counties or districts. Yeah, I mean, it strikes me, you know, you made this point about efficiencies and there are no more efficiencies to be made. You know, when you think about something like a global health supply chain and what it takes to identify a problem, source the drugs, figure out how to get the drugs there, especially if we're talking about communities who are living somewhere that's not very accessible. I mean, it's... It strikes me as a kind of scary endeavor to try to make determinations in Washington about how to, what to cut out of a supply chain or what kind of process could take less money. You know, and I think, uh, I do think that a lot of these decisions will be made at the country level once the countries have their individual allocations. That's sort of the model that um, PEPFAR has operated on and in recent years has sought to bring in civil society and local governments even more into that process. Um, you know, I do think uh, there will be some challenging decisions, especially if there are budget cuts and even if there aren't. And, and some of that um, is because of the, you know, the current strategy and some of the questions around what that's going to mean for funding. So I should have mentioned this at the outset, but this piece that you published on Friday is just one in a series that you are doing. What, what else are you looking at? And then when you're kind of identifying the, the transformation of PEPFAR and kind of what led it into being and what is allowing it to succeed. Yeah. So, um, you know, a couple of things. One of the things that's been really powerful about, um, about PEPFAR is that it has um, helped to build health systems across the countries in which it works. Um, and that's been hugely transformative, not just for HIV AIDS, but it's allowing all sorts of other, um, you know, public health services to come on on top of the infrastructure that it's built to the clinics. And um, so I recently had a conversation with Dr. Agnes Benoayo, uh, who's former Rwandan um, health minister who really, you know, helped lead the Rwandan AIDS response and helped build Rwanda's health system. And to talk about, you know, sort of the impact of PEPFAR on health system bu 
building and how countries can really look to use PEPFAR funds to um, like within their country planning processes to sort of maximize both HIV AIDS treatment but also to best build their health system so that it's really patient focused um, and that's the patient's full health care um, and not just HIV. Um, one of the critical issues we'll be looking more into that we touch upon in this first piece is the current PEPFAR strategy. It was released in September. There are 13 um, focus countries that were selected because they are nearing epidemic control and um, were identified as being able to reach epidemic control um, within the next three years. And so we're really going to be diving into that, talking to um, Ambassador Debbie Burks, who's the head of PEPFAR, about sort of what that strategy looks like and what it means going forward, both in those 13 countries, but also critically importantly in countries that are not among those 13. This actually pertains to a question that I meant to ask you earlier, and I know that we only have a couple minutes left, but I did want to ask about the process of country selection for PEPFAR, because we're talking about AIDS in Africa, but not every country is getting PEPFAR funding. Um, that's that's true, um, and PEPFAR is working in a few countries outside of Africa as well. Um, you know, unfortunately, we don't have a lot of answers as to how those 13 countries were selected, um, and that's one of the things that we're hoping to find out more about. Um, my understanding is that they were selected because they're nearing epidemic control, and so a push right now could help them get over the line in the next three years. Um, but it has raised some open questions about other countries that have a really high disease burden, like South Africa and Nigeria. Um, and so we have been working with a freelancer who works with us who's based in Nigeria to really dive in and look at the issue in Nigeria, which has been um, a pretty difficult place to sort of uh, address the HIV crisis. And maybe that's why it's not among the 13, but there are open questions as to what the funding will be going down the line. And there's a big survey that has just been launched to try to identify the breadth of the HIV epidemic in the country. Any other big points about PEPFAR that we haven't talked about that either you would like everyone to know that you're looking into and you're reporting or something just really big that strikes you in all of this? Yeah, you know, one story that I didn't mention yet, and we'll have a couple of other, you know, interview Q&As and, and probably a deeper look into the DREAMS program and some of, it, some of its data. Um, but we're also going to, Michael is working on a piece looking at the role of evangelical Christians in PEPFAR, both in its creation and, um, and today. And I think that's, um, they've been a really interesting community and, and big supporters um, in sort of getting um, PEPFAR off the ground. And a lot of, um, you know, Christian implementers have been critical in delivering services and programs. Um, the other thing I would say that's important to watch about PEPFAR is that um, there is a PEPFAR reauthorization. This is a reauthorization year. Its authorization expires um, at the end of this fiscal year. So that would be um, at the end of September. And there's currently um, an ongoing debate in Congress about whether we'll see an authorization bill. There are a lot of concerns that any authorization bill um, would seek to add additional language around, for example, the Mexico City policy or global gag rule, so how PEPFAR funds might, um, might be able to be spent in relation to the discussion of abortion services. So um, I think there is a group of people who would say we should just, you know, if we don't want to politicize PEPFAR, um, it's long been a bipartisan piece of legislation um, and had this strong bipartisan support. So we want to keep it out of the sort of politics 
that are going on right now. Seems like a hard thing to do. Yeah, and, and I think the way to do that is to not have an authorization bill, and I think that's a real possibility. Um, PEPFAR can continue to operate um, without a new authorization bill, and I think a lot of people are saying that at this point that might be right, uh, the right path to go down. And so I think we, we might see that. Um, one important thing to note is that uh, I think as the years pass, uh, support in Congress is less of a given than it was in the past. Uh, I think Barbara Lee was saying something like 20% of members of Congress today were around when Bush made that announcement um, to launch PEPFAR. And so there's a real need to sort of educate members of Congress today about PEPFAR uh, and why it's important and why it continues to be important, even though the sort of crisis moment of the epidemic that we saw in the early 2000s has changed. Call to action for those in the U.S. to educate your Congress people. And you can do that by sharing Adva's stories. She's also putting them out on her Twitter handle. If anyone wants to get in touch with Adva, I will go ahead and say to follow you at, at Adva Sal. Uh, don't forget to follow us at DevX because we'll be putting all of this coverage out from our out from Adva and Michael Igo's reporting as well. Adva, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Kate. And we will see you next week.